And now, our Father, we come once again to the Gospel of John, and we ask that you would give us a vision of the greatness and the glory of our God. And Father, we, I ask that right now as one who senses my own need and the reality that throughout the week I tend to lose that, that palpable understanding that I am not my own, that I belong to another, and that the only reason I belong to you is because of what you have done and not anything that I have done. My life is dependent upon you. Help us, Father, to see it this morning in the page and then to feel it in our hearts, the reality, the deep, rich reality that you are God and you are sovereign over our lives and we owe everything to you. So be glorified in this time, Father, we pray, for your great glory and for our own great joy. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in John chapter 3 this morning, and uh, I have been looking forward to and almost fearing John chapter 3, because it, the water gets really deep here. I'm just warning you. The water is really deep, and I'm going to take you down as far as I can go, but it's not all the way. There is much to be learned here. There is much to be learned here. We come to these passages week after week because we have a desire to know Christ, and I hope that's your desire this morning, and I hope it's also your desire to know yourself in the light of who Christ is. Because sometimes we miss it on that account as well. As a pastor and biblical counselor, I have the unique privilege of getting to know, kind of sitting down with people and hearing about their deepest personal and spiritual struggles. And, and I do that on a regular basis. I mean, several times a week, I get to hear the innermost workings of people's hearts. And one of the issues that comes up rather frequently is the whole area of assurance of salvation, and I mentioned that to you a couple of weeks ago, but this is a critical concern, and I think it relates to this passage this morning. In my experience, the unfortunate reality has been that many people regularly struggle with the question of whether or not they truly know the Lord, whether they're saved, whether they are born again. One author wrote about his experience of lacking assurance of salvation and he wrote about it in the following narrative. I just want to read it for you this morning because it encapsulates, I think, what a lot of people, and, and, and I would suspect a, a good number of people who are listening to my voice right now, often feel and think about their salvation. He writes this. Uh, by the way, this is uh, D. D. I'm sorry, J.D. Greer in his book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. He writes, by the time I reached the age of 18, I, was pro I had probably asked Jesus into my heart 5,000 times. I started somewhere around age four when I approached my parents one Saturday morning asking how someone could know that they were going to heaven. And they carefully led me down the Roman's road to salvation, and I gave Jesus his first invitation into my heart. 
And the author then explains that a few years later, he was hearing a gospel presentation in his Sunday school class, and it brought the whole issue up again. He writes, so I asked Jesus into my heart again, this time with a resolve to be much more intentional about my faith. I requested baptism, rebaptism, and gave a very moving testimony in front of our congregation about getting serious with God. Case closed, right? Not exactly. Not long after that, I found myself asking again, had I really been sorry enough for my sin this time around? Had I seen, I had seen some people weep rivers of tears when they got saved, but I hadn't. Did that mean I was not really sorry enough? That there was a few sins that I, I seemed to fall back into over and over again, no matter how many resolutions I made that I was going to do better Was I really sorry for those sins? Was that prayer a moment of total surrender? Would I have died for Jesus at that moment if he asked me to? And so I prayed the sinner's prayer again, and again, and again. Every time trying to get it right. Every time really trying to mean it. I would have a moment when I felt like I could, that I I got it right, followed by a temporary euphoria, but it would fade away quickly. And I'd ask it, I'd ask the question all over again. And so I prayed over again and again and again. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know in a group this size and the group of people who are hearing my voice right now that there are a number, probably a goodly number of people who resonate with what you just heard. Unfortunately, I suspect many Christians struggle with this kind of turmoil of soul. But this morning, I want to try to help with that. I think this text helps us with that. It's not going to answer all of your questions, but I think it will help lay a foundation that will put a solid rock under your feet, or think of it as a heavy weight in the bottom of your ship, the ballast of your ship. And your little ship is being tossed all over the place because there's a problem. You don't have a ballast. You don't understand something that's really, really important. Because you see, I believe that much of the confusion that people experience is owing to something deeper and more foundational than the doctrine of assurance. Doctrine of assurance is an important one. But there's something deeper that must be in place first. Um... I would submit to you that a lack of assurance is often more of a symptom than a cause. It's not the problem. It is an indication that that there is a problem. The cause, I believe, or the real problem is that often there is a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of salvation. There's a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of salvation. That is to say, in our current watered-down, man-centered, evangelical culture, many people don't really even know how sinners come to know God and become children of God. I would dare say in America, if half of the people who go to church I know this is a bold statement, but this is just my experience interacting with people. If half of the people who go to church this Sunday around the country could explain to you 
the fundamental, the fundamental basis, the ground upon which salvation is built, I would be shocked. I would be shocked. We don't know. And that's where the doubts come from. That's where the doubts come from. And that is what this passage before us, I think, is going to help settle. Again, not that all of your questions are going to be answered. They won't. But it's going to be good for us. And so, if you're ready, let's take on this passage. Let's stand together and read it. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read rather quickly because there's an awful lot here. And I'm not only going to have to read it, but explain it as well. So here we go. John chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And the man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God and as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. And as you're being seated, I wish I could, I wish I could kind of see into your heart right now and, and get a feel for what you just heard. And I wonder, as you were processing that, you were thinking, well, what, is, what does that sentence have anything to do with the previous sentence? Well, what is that, that next the next two or three sentences have anything to do with what went before that. This all just seems like disjointed verbiage that Jesus is throwing out and it doesn't seem to flow or make sense in, in any way. Well, that's why we're here. And I trust by the end of this, you're going to go, oh, wow, that makes, makes perfect sense. And I'm totally humbled by it. That should be your response and it should be mine. So if you're taking notes, we're talking about Nicodemus. And I'm calling point one a case study in confusion. A case study in confusion. Verses one and two are what we're talking about. This is our introduction to Nicodemus. So as we begin this study, it's important that we know who we're talking about. It's about Nicodemus, but it's more than just about Nicodemus. Something you need to understand about the Bible is that the chapter numbers were not inspired. In other words, God didn't say, this is chapter three. Now get ready to write, put a three. Let me see a three. And the previous one is chapter two, and this is where to put it, and these are, no, 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 all of that came later. And unfortunately, sometimes the placement of the chapter breaks is not only unhelpful, but sometimes confusing. Most of the Greek scholars that I've read about this text believe that the paragraph or the chapter really should have started in chapter 2, verse 23, because it kind of sets up what we're reading now. So let's step back a little bit and just go to 23 of chapter 2. It's just the next paragraph up. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them 
for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, you remember last week we talked about this critical word here that's kind of a play on words in Greek when he says, many believed in him. The Greek word there is pistos. And then when it says, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them, the root word there is pistos. It means the same thing. It means to believe or, or to trust. And so here is, here is what the text may be saying is, they believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. And you come away from that passage asking yourself, as we did two weeks ago, perhaps what we need to glean from this text, is it true that it's, salvation is not so much about me accepting Christ? Maybe it's about Christ accepting me. Has Christ accepted you into his heart? That's the real question. Has he accepted you? Remember, we, I gave you the illustration of the king last time. If you were to come into a throne room and approach the king, what would you be praying? Oh, Lord, I pray that he accepts me. I hope he accepts me. Like Esther, I hope he, hope he extends the rod and doesn't kill me. You don't go into a king's chamber and say, I just want you to know, I've been thinking about it, <laughs> and I accept you. It doesn't work that way. He's Lord. He is king. Your life hangs in the balance of his will. That fits better with reality, doesn't it? Rather than the way we approach Jesus so often, are you willing to accept him? He really wants you to accept him. He's standing at the door knocking, wanting to come in because he wants you to accept him. He's needy. He's lonely. He really wants you. That's not Christ. That's not the king. He is Lord. He is God. And so here these people were, they had some semblance of belief because they'd seen the miracles of Jesus. They had some belief in him, some level of belief in him, and yet Jesus was not entrusting himself or not believing in them. Now, case study. Let's talk about not generalities of people who believe, but one particular man who, was, who fits this category, and his name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus was there in in Jerusalem when, he, uh, when Jesus was performing his miracles and doing his initial teaching. Um, and so when we look at this, this case study of confusion, we find Nicodemus, who was a highly educated man in all things theological, and yet he was terribly confused about the most fundamental question of all, namely, how can a sinful man enter the kingdom of God? That's the question. That's the question. Now, how do we know that that was the question on his heart? Because he doesn't state it. We know that it was, was, was in the range of that kind of question because of the way Jesus answers. When he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the content that comes after identifies the issues in Nicodemus' heart that he intended to raise with Jesus. Before we get there, though, let's talk about who Nicodemus is. Who is this Nicodemus? Well, we know that he was a Pharisee. Uh, the text clearly says that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was part of the governing council of Israel called the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was made up of, of priests and uh, scribes, Pharisees and Sadducees alike, and others. 
It was a pretty mixed group. The, the Pharisees were very conservative. The Sadducees were very liberal. I mean, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They hardly even believed in God. And yet they were the religious leaders. In fact, they were the governmental leaders under the rule of Rome. And, and, and Nicodemus was one of these men. He's one of the rulers. Inter- interestingly enough, the uh, name Nicodemus is not a Jewish name. It's a Greek name. And that's interesting because in that day, if you were a wealthy Greek, I'm sorry, if you were a wealthy Jew and you were educated in the, um, the teachings of Greek literature and all things related to the education of the world, one of the things that was kind of chic to do during that period is you would name your son with a Greek name. It would indicate this young Jewish man is a scholar. He's going someplace. He's upwardly mobile. And probably he's from a wealthy family. Secondly, we know that he was extremely religious and had a robust theological education. I mean, that's just implicit here in the role as being a member of the Sanhedrin was the expectation that you were going to be highly educated. Nicodemus would have been from, from among the the culture of, uh, of high-toned men such as Gamaliel, that great rabbi of old, and none other than Saul of Tarsus, who was a disciple of Gamaliel. In fact, if you're, if you're thinking just chronology here, here's Nicodemus. <clears throat> there is no Paul the Apostle yet. It is Saul of Tarsus. He is probably also a member of this council. And at this point, their theology is in lockstep. In fact, Nicodemus is probably a little ahead of Paul at this point because he's beginning to believe. Saul, on the other hand, all he wants to do is kill Christians. Far from belief. Now, unlike most of the other members of the council, Nicodemus, at least at some level, believed. He was beginning to believe in Jesus. At the very least, he had already concluded that Jesus had been sent from God. Watch this. He says so. Uh, He says to Jesus in verse 2, this man came and he said to uh, Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. Well, that's a pretty, pretty profound statement. I mean, there are other members of the Sanhedrin who would already challenge Jesus because he cleared the temple. They're already questioning his authority, and that's going to lead them to murderous intent. But there were some, even among the priests, even among the Pharisees, who saw the works that Jesus did, and they went, huh, could he be the Messiah? They listen to his teaching, and they think, wow, that's really different than what we're used to hearing, but it sounds biblical. Could he be the Messiah? Nicodemus was apparently one of them. And uh, that would have put him in a really dicey situation with the rest of the council. Because eventually the rest of the council is going to want to kill him. And even now, he knows that this is not, the direction he's going with Jesus is not the same direction as the other leaders. Which probably explains why he came to Jesus under cover of darkness. Well, whatever the belief in Jesus Nicodemus may have had, it was apparently based on the miracles he had seen. He said, no one can do these signs, that is miracles, that you do 
unless God is with him. So notice the two statements. He is from God. You are from God. We believe you are from God, and we believe that God is with you. Well, that's belief, isn't it? That sounds like belief. I mean, imagine the evangelistic opportunity here for Jesus. I mean, get this guy saved. Let's pray the prayer. You know, let's sign the sticker in the back of your, your scroll or whatever. And um, now we've got somebody on the inside. Now we've got a true believer in the Sanhedrin. Jesus, Jesus doesn't go for that. It's interesting. If you read the way Jesus does evangelism, you think, what? Nobody's going to buy that. Nobody's going to buy that. What do you mean? Give all of your life and your eternity, trust it all, to a criminal who was crucified on the cross, who was hated by those who were religious leaders, and who promised you things in the distant future but gave you nothing immediately of value now that anybody could see? You want me to give my life over to him? I mean, that's a, who's going who's gonna to accept that? Who's going to buy that? And some of the things that Jesus said just seemed like he designed them to push people away from him. And so here's Nicodemus. He comes at night under cover of darkness. This is a profound opportunity for Jesus to do something with him and to kind of get him in, make him a disciple. Let's do something grand here. Let's get right to the top. Jesus didn't do any of that. His evangelism, I think, is, is so different from ours. You know why? Same reason as I mentioned earlier. We don't fully understand the nature of salvation. We think it's about what we do with unbelievers. The prayer we can get them to pray. The sincerity that we can drum up or the emotion of it. That's not what salvation is about. Just get them to join the church. That's not what salvation is about. Finally, as one of the guardians of the Old Testament ritualistic system and tradition, Nicodemus would have, um, his view of how a person would get into the kingdom of heaven would have been completely works-based. It would have been focused on what people can do to earn God's favor and appease his wrath. It would have been self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. This is who Nicodemus is. But in some respects, his testimony, his testimony is, is really not that different from the one I read you a few minutes ago. I mean, in that case, the author's struggle focused on things like this. Was I sorry enough? Was I sincere enough? Did I surrender enough? Did I confess sin enough? And beloved, I just want to say right here, with all the gentleness and sensitivity, I hope you're hearing from my heart, this needs to be said, that that kind of thinking is the mentality of works-based righteousness. Did I believe enough? Was I sincere enough? Did I have faith enough? It's works-based self-righteousness. It may be coming out of a, a somewhat humble heart, but it's coming from a heart 
that doesn't fully understand the nature of salvation. Because nobody gets saved by being humble enough or sincere enough or confessing enough or being sorry enough. That's not how it goes. No amount of righteous deeds can justify us in the eyes of God. And here's the thing. You know that intuitively. And so every time these questions rise in your mind, was I sincere enough? Did I have enough faith? All of those things. You never get a satisfying answer because deep in your heart, you know there's something wrong with the question. Because you know you can be good enough. You know you can never pray enough. You know you can never do enough righteous deeds. It's always going to come short, always going to come short. How do we know that? Because Jesus said this, you have to be as righteous as God is righteous. You must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what Jesus says. That just means you got to be as good as God to get into the kingdom. And so was I righteous enough? Are you kidding? Am I as righteous as God? I mean, am I sorry enough for my sins? Was I sincere enough? How does that fit into the equation of you've got to be as good as God? And so the answer is always going to be no. And if you're basing your assurance on those questions, you're always going to be in doubt. You're always going to be in doubt. And so Nicodemus is a case study of confusion, and I'm convinced These are the kinds of questions that were rolling around in his heart. And the reason I believe that, as I said, is because of how Jesus answers. Now, knowing the confusion Nicodemus was experiencing, here Jesus is, he's listening to him, and in that culture, when you're wanting to approach someone in a dignified manner, the first thing you do is you throw out compliments. We know that you're from God. Nobody could do these things if if you weren't from God. God is with you, and and Jesus Jesus just cuts that off. You know why? Well, we read why. Chapter 2, verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. What's that mean? Nicodemus, I know what's going on in your heart. I know the questions that you're asking. Let's just cut through all of this stuff and get to the issue. Let's just get to the issue. And so Jesus cuts through the camouflage to teach Nicodemus and us a profound lesson in spiritual conception. A lesson in spiritual conception. We've seen the case study of confusion. This is a lesson in spiritual uh, uh, conception, verse 3. And here's Jesus. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what? Nicodemus didn't ask anything about the kingdom of God, no. But Jesus knew that that's what was on his heart. That was what's bugging him. That's where he was going to go if, if, if Jesus just let him carry the conversation the direction he wanted it to go. Truly, truly. Uh, in the Greek, it's interesting. It just says, amen, amen. So you could do that. You can kind of do that in reverse. When I say something that's really good, you can say, truly, truly. You're not going for that, are you? (laughs) I didn't think so. But amen, amen. He says truly, truly. And some scholars think uh, the reason he says these words, truly, truly, 
is because of what Nicodemus has said, and that was this. We know. This, that was classic Pharisee. We know. We are the purveyors of truth. We know that you are from God. This is us authoritatively speaking. We know. We are the ones who are in the know, and this is what we know about you. You are from God. And Jesus said, truly. Nicodemus, you think you know, and you know a lot of things, granted. But the most fundamental thing of all, you don't have a clue. You don't have a clue. Truly, truly, I say to you, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is it that Nicodemus didn't know? He didn't know that the people who enjoy entrance into the kingdom of God are not those who know the most, who are sincere the most, who are committed the most, who impress God with their long prayers, their elaborate sacrifices, their financial gifts. They won't be the people who are sufficiently sorry for their sins or even publicly repentant. In fact, being qualified to enter the kingdom of God has nothing at all to do with what a man does. Nothing. It has everything to do with what God does. The only people who will ever enter the kingdom of heaven are those who are born again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now, that was unexpected. Of all the things that perhaps Nicodemus conjectured that Jesus would counsel him with, this wasn't it. I mean, where did that come from? This was shocking. This was confusing to Nicodemus. And it was probably, after he thought about it for a little while, a little bit offensive. Are you telling me that I may be lost? Are you saying that despite all my morality and all my prayers and all of my fasting and all of my education and all the tithing and Sabbath keeping that I may be one of those who's excluded from heaven and cast into hell? Why, am I not a son of Abraham? This would have been shocking. And Jesus is saying that while all of that may be true, All of his credentials may be true. None of it merits entrance into the kingdom of God. None of it has the power to reconcile you to holy God. All of it together will not justify you in the eyes of God. For the only people who will have the joy of final and ultimate salvation are those who were born again. Nicodemus is on the front side of salvation. We get to Philippians, however, Philippians chapter 2 and uh, chapter 3, and we find the Apostle Paul, who no doubt was on the council with Nicodemus after his experience on the road to Damascus. This is what he would write about his credentials. 
chapter 3, verse 7 of Philippians. But whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is where Nicodemus needed to get to. He needed to get to that perspective. But even that that wasn't going to happen until something changed in his heart. We need to understand here that the term born again means born from above. In fact, the word, again, can be translated either way. Born from above. But it should be born from above because that's exactly the way Jesus explains it. Jesus was speaking of a spiritual birth. He was speaking of a kind of spiritual life that is not something that can be attained or earned. Or it's only something that can be given and something received. The theological term for this is regeneration. Say that with me. Regeneration. Now I'm going to tell you the name of it and you, or the, the, uh, the meaning of it. And, and think about this. Let's see if you can hear the meaning of the word in the word. Regeneration, that's the word. The meaning is new genesis. Regeneration, new genesis. What is genesis? Beginning. Beginning. It's a new beginning. The new beginning. And by the way, we see this expounded upon throughout the New Testament. Just a couple of texts here. 2 Corinthians 5.17, when Paul speaks of salvation, he does it in terms of being made a new creature. Or the King James, I think, says, new creation in Christ. It harkens back to when God created the heavens and the earth and breathed into man the breath of life. Beloved, this is creation language. Now, what I want you to see here is the connection between salvation and Paul's usage of creation language to explain how salvation happens. We see it again in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and here's the way Paul says it. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's creation language. Let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now think about that. Let light shine out of darkness. What is that? That's creation. That's God saying, let there be light. And where did it come from? It didn't come from anywhere. It came from, that's the way theologians say it, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Just the voice of the Lord created it with a word. And Paul is saying, that's how you got salvation. The same way light burst into, burst onto the creation scene out of nothing. God merely spoke. This is the new Genesis. This is regeneration. And you remember, you can turn with me if you want to, to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, and this is what we read here. Titus 3, 5 says this. And, uh, notice again another passage about the gospel, and watch how he describes it here. Paul spoke of salvation this way. 
He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, how did he save us? By regeneration. And so you see, the scriptures consistently speak about the essence of salvation, not in terms, about, not in terms of what man does, but about what God does. Think about it. How did light come into existence? How did the earth and all of its life come into existence? Did it do anything to bring itself into existence? Did light do anything to bring itself into existence? Did man do anything for God to breathe into him the breath of life? Did you do anything to cause yourself to be born? All of these analogies that Jesus and the apostle uses are all designed to show us that we are utterly dependent on God for salvation. You can't just whip up a prayer. You can't just walk down the aisle and sign something on, in the back of someone's or your own Bible and expect God is going to accept that. That's not the root of salvation. That's not the essence of salvation. And so you see the scriptures consistently speak about the essence of salvation and not in what we do, but in what he has done. But Nicodemus, he didn't immediately get his, his head wrapped around all of this. This was confusing. He just couldn't understand what Jesus meant when he said, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the, he cannot see the, the kingdom of heaven. And so, number three here, a request for clarification. And verse 4. And so Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now clearly Nicodemus was at a loss here. Now Jesus, I, I come, I, I want to dialogue about these things with you, but I mean, first sentence out of your mouth, you're throwing me. Help me to understand this. You've said that I must be born again, and I am not understanding what born again means. Now, I don't, think, I don't think what he's saying is meant to be combative. I don't think Nicodemus' question is intended to be sarcastic. I mean, this is a very educated guy. He knows how to dialogue with people. He knows how to debate. He knows how to enter into these formal dialogues with important people. And so he's not being sarcastic or slapping Jesus verbally. He's saying, Jesus, help me with this. You say I have to be born again. Now, first of all, I don't understand what born again is, but I can conclude this. Surely you don't mean that a man has to go back into his mother's womb. That doesn't make any sense. We can cross that out, so help me. And Jesus does. Nicodemus' request for clarification leads Jesus to, number four, a stunning explanation. A stunning explanation. We'll start with verse five. Jesus answered, amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, watch this, born of water 
and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so what are we learning about entrance into the kingdom of God? How does one qualify to enter the kingdom of God? First statement of Jesus, you must be born again. Second statement of Jesus, you must be born of water and the Spirit. Now, these are not different things. These are the same thing. He's using different terms because he wants Nicodemus to begin to understand. What does he mean by born again? Jesus' explanation has three parts. First, Jesus appeals to biblical truth. Biblical truth that Nicodemus should already have known and no doubt did know. Whatever born again means, it's synonymous with being born of water and the Spirit. Being born of water and the Spirit is the same as being born again. Now, what does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? Well, very quickly, there are some views on this that don't hold water, views that that aren't going to cut it. And uh, this first one is the one, when I was a teenager and I was trying to understand theology and trying to explain things to people as best I could, this is the view that I would that I would tell people. Born of water, born of the Spirit means this. You're born physically. There's amniotic fluid. There's water. Uh, you're born physically, and then you're born spiritually. I mean, you can't be born spiritually, I mean, unless you're born physically. You've got to be alive to get saved. I mean, Jesus wasn't saying anything profound here. <laughs> oh, yes, he was. He's saying something very profound. It can't be physical birth and spiritual birth. Because all Jesus is talking about is one birth. So these two, water and spirit, it can't be physical birth and spiritual birth. Another problem with this is we have no place in the biblical text that refers to uh, physical birth as being born of water. There's just no example of it in the text. And so it would seem way outside the, what we call the interpretive range of understanding This can't be physical birth and spiritual birth. Other people will say, well, this has to do with baptism. You're going to be born of water and born of the Spirit. That means you've got to be baptized in order to be saved. Well, that's not true. That can't be true. Um, Nicodemus would have known nothing about Christian baptism. Jesus would never explain anything about Christian baptism. It was the apostles who would come along and explain that. This was not the time for that. Nicodemus would not have picked up on that at all because there was no such thing. Furthermore, if baptism is what saved people, then Jesus would go around baptizing. And we know from the Gospels, very explicitly we're taught, Jesus baptized nobody, but his disciples did. His disciples did on his behalf, but it was not for salvation. I mean, that would have been the perfect thing for Jesus to do. Just go around and get people saved. Come down to the water, meet me at the water, and you'll be saved. Just get baptized, get baptized, get baptized. Never did that. There are other views of this. It can't be baptism. It can't be physical birth and spiritual birth. Um, There are other views as well. We don't have time to go into all of that. But the important thing to realize here at the beginning is that Jesus expected, whatever the interpretation is, Jesus expected Nicodemus to get it. If he didn't get it intuitively, this clue would have helped him because the text that Jesus is referring to is well-known in Israel, and it's well-known in the church. And so turn with me to that all-important passage 
in Ezekiel chapter 36. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. This is such a wonderful text, and, and we go to it frequently because this is kind of the Old Testament version of the gospel, gospel and that's, that's kind of the port, point here. Look at verse 25, verses 25 through 27. I'll give you a little context here. Ezekiel is called an exilic prophet. You know why he's called an exilic prophet? It's because he prophesied to God's people in the exile. Jeremiah was a pre-exilic prophet. He actually prophesied to Israel before Babylon came to take them away, and even during the, uh, the, the reign of terror that Babylon came and brought on Judah, he was pre-exilic. And then those minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament, those are post-exilic prophets. But here it's Ezekiel. He is, he is preaching to God's people while they're in Babylon, and here's basically his message. The reason that you're here is because of your sinful, idolatrous heart. But do not despair. It's only going to last 70 years. And at the end of the 70 years, God's going to bring you back to the land. And that's good news. But it's nowhere near as good as what God promises for your future. What got you in trouble and landed you in captivity in Babylon was your wicked, sinful, wandering, idolatrous heart. But someday, this is what God's going to do. God speaking through Ezekiel, verse 25. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. Notice water. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you. I will wash you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. More than that, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit, notice spirit, within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, that dead heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, a living heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. Someday, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something that you can't even imagine. I'm going to send my spirit. And he's not just going to give you laws to obey that you can't obey. He's going to make a fundamental change in your soul. First of all, he's going to cleanse you. He's going to scrub you down. He's going to wash you. He's going to get rid of all the filth, all the guilt, all the shame, all of it. He's going to wash it away and make you pure and holy, even as God is holy. And in order to sustain that, he's going to do something even more glorious. He's going to give you a brand new heart. So that you will want to be pleasing to the Lord. So that you'll want to obey God's word. So that you'll love God's people. So that you'll love Christ and love the Holy Spirit with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. He's going to do that. And he's the only one who can. 
He's the only one who can. Beloved, behold a passage that Nicodemus would have known. He no doubt had preached on this and had his hope fixed on this and didn't understand it, but loved it. This Old Testament passage shows that regeneration was an Old Testament truth. It was not something that Jesus just made up. It was regeneration in the Old Testament. How does, it get, how does a person get to be born again? The point of this passage is that, something, that, that being born again is something that only the Holy Spirit can do. Regeneration happens when the Holy Spirit comes and does something amazing in a person's soul. It's like having all of your guilt washed away. It's like having a spiritual heart transplant. It's glorious. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Here's Jesus speaking of his, of his bride, the church. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having, watch this, cleansed her, how? By the washing of water with the word. You want born of water and born of the spirit? That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be born again. And it tells us how a man is born again. How is a person washed? How does a person receive the Holy Spirit? God does that. And he's the only one who can. He's the only one who can. Now consider the next statement. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. This is back in John chapter 3. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. What's he saying? He's saying that even if it were possible, Nicodemus, for you to experience physical birth all over again, it wouldn't help you. It wouldn't help you. It wouldn't help you. So you're a son of Abraham again. The only thing that Abraham could give you was the example of faith and then flesh, 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 flesh. You still have the Adamic nature, the nature of Adam who sinned and plunged all of us into this situation of sin. You still have a sinful heart. You get born physically all over again, that's not going to help you. I mean, how's it working out for you now? Flesh can only generate flesh, and that's not what sinners need. Sinners need something that they can only get from the Holy Spirit. Only he can impart the new nature. Only he can cause a person to be born again. And then finally, consider Jesus' last statement. Here's how he starts this. Verse 7, do not be amazed that I said to you. You know what he's saying here? It's more emphatic in the Greek. It says this, stop being so surprised. And knock it off, Nicodemus. You know these things. You know the Old Testament. You are the teacher of the law. You know this. 
It's just been twisted and warped in your mind. You who know, <laughs> you know nothing. Let me teach you. Let me teach you. Do not be amazed that I said to, notice the pronoun here, that I said to what? To you. Now he's making it personal. Nicodemus, this is not just a general theological conversation. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. Do not be amazed that I said to you. Now, what did Jesus say? You must be born again. I mean, if you hadn't been offended to this point, now's the time. I mean, he's a Pharisee. I mean, he was a leader of, of Israel. I mean, he was a rich guy. He was wealthy. He was highly educated, and he had really neat clothes. <laughs> He stood out. I mean, everybody knew who the Pharisees were. You just had to look across the, the, the road, and I mean, you could pick them out. Everybody knew who they were. They were respected. They were honored. They were honorable. They were people of power and means. And here's Jesus. You studied theology all your life, and you count your wealth as a blessing from God, and indeed it is. But at the end of the day, it amounts to nothing. It amounts no more for you than it does for your compadre, Saul of Tarsus. And I'm fixing to take it all away so that he will know the joy of seeing the kingdom of God. Isn't that amazing? You've got to put yourself in Nicodemus's place here. Um, if there was anyone who would be shocked by this, it would be him. Their view of baptism kind of rolls into this as well because in their minds, you know who got baptized? Not the Jews. Gentiles. Baptism was for the Gentiles. Because the only way you could come to God, the only way you could see the kingdom of God is become a Jew. And so, if you want to be, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you get baptized, you get wet, you get washed, you get in the water, you go under, as if you died and are born again. That's something for the Gentiles. And so it was scandalous for a Pharisee to submit to that. Because what he would have to admit is, God, I don't have any more to offer you. Even though I'm a Jew, I don't have anything more to offer you than a Gentile, than a pagan, than Nebuchadnezzar himself. I have nothing to offer you except my unworthiness and sin. And Jesus is saying, get over it, Nicodemus. Stop being shocked by this. You must be born again. And then a final illustration to drive the point home. The question being, how does a person get born again? Verse 8. <laughs> Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it wishes. 
you hear the sound of it, and you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. And Nicodemus has got to be thinking, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> and so Jesus says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a play on words here. We've talked about this before. The word for wind is pneuma, and the word for spirit, pneumatas. The wind, the pneuma, blows. You don't ever see it. You see the effects of it, but you don't see it. And here's the most important part. You cannot control it. You can't even see it. You can only see the effects of it. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Regeneration is entirely the work of the Holy Spirit. The wind can't be controlled. It blows wherever it wishes. Its effects can be observed, but it can't be controlled. And the same is true of the Spirit's sovereign work of regeneration in the human heart. It cannot be controlled, manipulated, earned, or predicted. But the effects of his work are easily seen through the transformed lives of those whom he has caused to be born again. And that's why this same apostle John in his first epistle will say these words, the children of the devil and the children of God are obvious. You make it all complex. You make the water muddy so that everybody can be a part. It's not what Jesus did. It's not what Jesus did. You want a good definition of regeneration? Here's one from Dr. Wayne Grudem. Regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. I mean, Apostle John, by the way, makes this clear. Turn to the left in your Gospel of John there and go to chapter 1. And watch this, John chapter 1, verse 13. Here is the Apostle John speaking about salvation, speaking about who God's people truly are. And he says, they, they are those who were born, notice the word born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of who? Man. But of The only way anybody ever gets saved is God, not by any impulse that comes from outside of himself, but simply by the impulse of his infinite grace, chooses to save some. Now, I realize that teaching like this makes for small churches. <laughs> I understand that. This isn't Calvinism. This isn't Arminianism. This isn't, this is Jesus. It's not some artificial theological construct. This is just what the text says. So you see, beloved, assurance of salvation doesn't come by asking yourself, was I sincere enough? Was I sorry enough? Did I confess enough? Did I surrender enough? Did I really mean it? You see the focus of all of these statements? You know what the focus is in each one of these statements? Watch. I, 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 
I, and I. You know what that is? It's five dead ends. You'll never get to assurance of salvation that way. You'll never get to assurance of salvation that way. There isn't any life in I. You are the problem. I am the problem. I am not the solution to the problem. And not only that, but I'm incapable of delivering to myself the solution. It can only come from God. And so again, I ask, how, how much can you contribute to this? How much did you contribute to your birth? How much did Adam contribute to his uh, being created? How much did light contribute to, being, to bursting into existence? How did Lazarus get raised from the dead? It's the word of God. And when the question is whether or not you're born again, the answer is never about you. It's never about what you did or what you said or what you felt. It's always about God. And beloved, I think too often we view salvation as kind of a business deal. You know, you get something out of this, I get something out of it. You agree, I agree. You happy? I'm happy. I'd like to make a, a little, little tweak to the contract here. You know, that's great in business deals. But what we are confronting here is not a business partner. What we are being confronted by here is God. You know what Nebuchadnezzar said after he ate grass for seven years? He came to his senses. And he suddenly met God. I believe he'll be in heaven because of this statement. When he came out of that seven years, instead of taking glory to himself, he said of God, he does whatever he pleases in the powers of heaven and the people of earth, and no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? He's God. He's God. Now, it's impossible to tell really what happened to Nicodemus after this encounter with Jesus. He might have left offended and unchanged. We don't know. In fact, we don't get any more words from Nicodemus except verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? He's still asking questions. And then the rest of this, Jesus doesn't even give him a chance to, to talk. We'll start that next week. But really, we, we don't know what happened to him immediately after this. Later on, however, when the Sanhedrin was going to try to condemn Jesus without a trial, in John 7, verse 50, it was Nicodemus who reminded them that the law requires evidence. We don't condemn anyone without a trial. What does that mean? It means maybe his belief is starting to deepen. And then after... After Jesus paid the ultimate price on the cross, you remember a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea received permission from Pilate to take the body of Jesus away and give it a proper burial. And as we're kind of following that narrative, uh, when he brings the body to the tomb, we learn that another man gets involved with that whole process. And he also is a rich man. We know he's rich at this point because he brings a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes to make sure Jesus had an honorable burial. And you know who that was? 
John 19.39. John says, it was Nicodemus. And just in case we're tempted to be confused and think it was a different Nicodemus, he says, the same one who would first come to Jesus by night. What happened? We're not told. Apparently, the wind blew. Now, you might be thinking, this is all wonderful, it's great, it's challenging, it's deep. Where does faith fit in? I thought salvation was by faith alone. No, 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 no. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. The order is critical. If you get the order wrong, then you're going to be asking yourself, did I believe enough? Did I believe enough? Did I believe enough? And we're going to talk about faith. There's a place. Faith is definitely a part of the equation, but you know what? This text doesn't even mention it. It's not the point here. Later on, he will talk about it down in verse 15. We'll get to faith. But here is what I want you to see. God is sovereign over your salvation. If you've got it, you can't mess it up because you didn't do anything to get it. And if you don't have it, you're probably thinking, okay, well, if it's all God, then what hope do I have? I mean, are you saying I can't do anything to get it? If you mean by that, is there anything I can do to force God to give me salvation? The answer is no. No. But you can ask. One of my children came to me recently, and we were having this conversation. That's what I told him. One of the guys, I think, at, at uh, Awana said, go home and write your testimony. If you don't have one, talk to your dad about that. So he did. He came to me, and he said, Dad, I'm not sure I even have a testimony. Well, that's good. Glad you're thinking about it. And we talked about the gospel again. And, and how, do I, how do I do that? Well, son, it's, it's a gift of God. You can't make it happen. But you can ask him. You can ask him. What about you? What is your relationship with God like? You know him. We're going to talk about assurance later. All I wanted to do this morning is put a ballast in your ship. Let's get the weightiest thing in the bottom of your boat. And the weightiest thing is this. God is God. And he is the Lord of your salvation. No one can come to him unless he draws us to himself. This is our God. How should we respond? First, we should respond in humble worship. I mean, for a moment here, let Jesus push us completely out of the picture so that all we see is God. That's where a true understanding of salvation comes from. That's the unshakable ground of insurance. Second, we should repent. We should repent of our self-focused, self-righteous worship or self-righteous attitude in relating to God, thinking somehow that maybe even as a believer that I can impress God by my law-keeping and my works and my, my doing all of this stuff as if I gain more favor, more grace from God. 
or that if, if, you, if you're not sure you know him, that somehow that's going to earn favor with you? Repent of that. Repent of that. Throw yourself on the mercy of the court and trust God to be God. And third, some of you may be wondering if salvation is, is all of that. What do I do now? You start asking. Here, let me give you something else to do too. You see this book? Throw yourself into it. Read it. Learn it. Read it. Eat it. Drink it. Meditate on it. And ask God to do what only God can do. You see, beloved, becoming a child of God is, is not, does not happen simply by praying a prayer or being more religious. It comes as a mysterious act of God whereby through the sheer impulse of his sovereign grace he causes sinners to be born again. Let's pray. And Father, we praise you for this. We need this adjustment in our theology so that we are worshiping you for who you are and we are relying on the truth as it is revealed. And so, Father, we pray that you would have your way and that you would send your spirit to multiply the effects of this scripture in our hearts and cause us to love Christ more, cause us to be awed at the greatness and glory of the Father and submissive to the influences of the Spirit in our hearts. For your great glory and for our own joy, we pray it in Jesus' name.